Good evening, I'm Karen Kennerly, Director of Penn American Center, and I want to welcome you here tonight to uh, Vietnam Voices, The War in American Literature, a panel sponsored by Penn and the English Department of NYU. Um, before I introduce the moderator, I'd like to announce that there is a film tomorrow night in the Loeb Student Center, room 511 at 7.30, called The 10,000 Day War, um, a film I presume produced by the Southeast Asian Resource Center and the Vietnamese Student Association, sponsored by, that is. Uh, our moderator tonight is Harry Maurer. His most recent uh, book, which is published by Houghton Mifflin last month, is Webs of Power. And he's currently writing an oral history of Vietnam. Harry Maurer. Thank you. Can people hear? Okay. Welcome to Vietnam Voices, the War in American Literature. To give you an idea of the high-tone sort of moderator you've got, uh, I'm going to begin by quoting from a graffito that's painted on the underside of a stairway in the Union Square subway station. It's been there for a number of years, and I get more and more intrigued by it. I don't know whether this graffito is a well-known folk poem in the military, since I've never been in the military, or if it sp simply sprang from the mind of some underground bard. In fact, if anyone here can answer that question for me later, I'd appreciate it. In any case, the graffito goes like this. They do their best, they do what they can, they get them ready for Vietnam. From old Hanoi to East Berlin, commando, involved again. There are two things in particular that I like about this poem. One is the first line. They do their best, they do what they can. There's something perfectly sinister about that abstract they, a suggestion of unseen puppet masters getting us ready for Vietnam. I also like the last line, commando involved again. The sense of doomed repetition, of having seen it all before, of armed men being sent into another distant hotspot. That line seems to grow more relevant by the week. For we are now living through a time when an all too specific they, Messrs. Reagan, Haig et al., are dispatching advisors and materiel to intervene in yet another civil war in yet another small, poor country that few Americans had ever heard of until a couple of years ago. Everyone is drawing the parallel between Vietnam and El Salvador, of course, including the demonstrators in Washington last Saturday, many of whom carried signs saying, no more Vietnams. It's a good parallel, and it should be drawn insistently. For those of us who cut our political teeth on the Vietnam War, the return of precisely the same rationales, the same promises, the same democratic posturings on behalf of a teetering oligarchy causes an experience of deja vu so sharp as to be quite surprising. I find myself saying, what, we have to hear this again? This stuff hasn't <laughs> gone away? I imagine those of you with clear memories of, of earlier interventions must be used to it all by now. But El Salvador is not the only reason to think about Vietnam today. Americans seem to be waking from an interlude of shock, of willed amnesia, of recuperative repression, call it what you will, that followed the war. The country seems less reluctant to consider what happened in Vietnam and what it means. There are signs all over. Vietnam veterans are better organized and are winning belated recognition that their needs have been neglected. Major television and publishing ventures concerning the war are in progress. 
Ground was broken last week for a Vietnam memorial in Washington. Naturally, the revival of interest in Vietnam brings with it a revival of the argument that we should be proud of what we did there. Fresh on the field of battle is Norman Podhoritz's new book, Why, we're, Why We Were in Vietnam. Mr. Podhoritz believes that while we could not have won that particular war, our effort was morally sound, and he attacks those who maligned our good intentions. Christopher Hitchens responds in this week's Nation magazine that this sort of thinking is calculated, quote, to begin a vendetta against the enemy within, and thus to justify future interventions in advance. For all these reasons, it seems a good idea to talk about the literature of the Vietnam War. We writers are fond of saying things like, we are the interpreters of the nation's experience, or we articulate the thoughts and dreams of millions, and so on. Partly we say this to make up for our general inability to make much money, and for our frequent feelings of insignificance. But presuming there's some measure of truth to the claim, one may profitably ask what kind of writing has been done about Vietnam and what hasn't been done, what that tells us about our relation to the war, and what effect, if any, writing about Vietnam has had on our literature and on our society. I permit myself a few observations since it may be the only chance I get to sound off. In Robert Stone's latest novel, A Flag for Sunrise, he mentions the, quote, moral fascination, unquote, that Vietnam exerted upon Americans who were there. It's an arresting phrase, and it's a true one, and it applies as well to many Americans who never went to Vietnam. We saw, and we continue to see, the war as a test of individuals and of a nation in action. Evidence of this fascination comes from the sheer volume of writing about Vietnam, even during the period in the 1970s when we didn't like to remember. Dozens of novels, plays, books of journalism, and autobiographical, autobiographical accounts have appeared. Yet despite all this literature, an argument can be made that Vietnam and writing about Vietnam have not had much impact. And I say that not only because the government seems so determined to reinvent intervention. Last week, I spied on another panel discussion about the war, during which John Leonard remarked that Vietnam ought to have been as traumatic as the Civil War. I think he meant that the war should have marked for us an unmistakable, irreversible turning point in our history. I'm not sure he's right about that, but I am sure that Vietnam hasn't had that effect. One might think also of World War I. The American involvement in that conflict was brief compared to Vietnam, and fewer Americans died. The starry-eyed American writers who went off to that war emerged disgusted and disillusioned with the official explanations for the carnage, much as Vietnam veterans did. Yet the American writers of the World War I generation, among them Hemingway, Cummings, and Dos Passos, were soon to revolutionize the writing of the English language. The war indelibly marked their prose, and thereby the way we think and speak. Will the same be said of Vietnam 50 years hence? Perhaps it is too early to tell. And perhaps the comparison is pointless. Vietnam, after all, was not an international cataclysm, but a hell in a very small place where a great number of Americans and a far greater number of Vietnamese, Laotians, and Cambodians died. Most American writing about the war describes small numbers of men fighting and dying. It gives the view from the foxhole, the rice paddy, the fire base. Some of that writing is superb, including work by members of this panel. Yet the context of the combat is largely omitted, 
For example, the society in which the war was taking place. Few books of fiction or journalism, there are notable exceptions, attempt an understanding of the Vietnamese. Without that, it is hard to understand the clash of the two cultures, ours and theirs. Is this a stupid quibble? Most writing about war is ethnocentric and apolitical. Why should Vietnam be any different? The classic themes of war literature are courage, honor, sacrifice, manliness, violence, loss, and the horrors and thrill of combat. All of these are explored, sometimes with great power, in American writing about Vietnam. If I sense something missing, it is only because Vietnam, as the quintessentially political war, creates a tricky junction of literature and politics. Besides being a bloody mess like any other war, Vietnam was about the American encounter with revolution and nationalism in an utterly foreign territory, Asia. The United States entered for political reasons and lost for political reasons that we perhaps have yet to understand. We missed the point of Vietnam, if you will, and in the process we inflicted and absorbed great suffering. Vietnam, in short, was not just another war. For Americans, it was different. Our moral fascination with it arises from a suspicion or a certainty of moral vulnerability. This, I think, complicates the task of writing about the war. A novel like The Naked and the Dead examines the classical themes of courage and heroism, if only to debunk them, while resting secure that its audience shares a basic belief in the rightness of the war effort. Books about Vietnam cannot assume that shared belief. Quite the contrary. They carry within them, if only as a subtext, two unpleasant themes. One is ethnocentricity, the sort of blind faith in American racial and ideological superiority that led us to fight in Vietnam while preserving our ignorance of the Vietnamese. The other theme, arising from the consequences of the first, is guilt. I would not suggest that every book about Vietnam should take these matters as its subject, but I think it is striking how few have dealt with them at length. Are we missing the point again? Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the ending of Michael Hare's book, Dispatches. The last line is, Vietnam, Vietnam, Vietnam. We've all been there. It's worth asking, I think, have we really? And if so, did we take stock of what we saw? Having said all this, and probably <coughs> infuriated all the panelists, I'd like to say that we're extraordinarily lucky to have this group gathered here, partly because they contradict in different ways some of the generalizations I've just made. The Vietnamese are not a major presence in most, most American writing about the war, but we have with us Francis Fitzgerald, whose book Fire in the Lake, which won the Bancroft Prize for History, the Pulitzer Prize, and the National Book Award, is probably the definitive statement on the Americans and the Vietnamese in Vietnam. She is also the author of America Revised, a book about the way we rewrite history. We also have Robert Olin Butler, immediately to my left, whose novel The Alleys of Eden, published last year by Horizon Press, <coughs> is about an American man and a Vietnamese woman who live first in Saigon and then in Illinois, Illinois, and find ultimately that their differences drive them apart. 
His new novel, Sundogs, will be published this fall by Horizon. Books about Vietnam often pay little attention to the social and racial schisms within the American armed forces, but we have with us George Davis, to Robert's right, I mean left, whose novel Coming Home, not related to the film of the same name, deals with the conflicts of black men fighting a white man's war, among other themes. And while most American fiction about Vietnam is written in a classical, realistic mode, Tim O'Brien's novel, Going After Cacciato, makes rich use of fantasy to convey the experience of war. It won the National Book Award. Tim is also the author of If I Die in a Combat Zone, an autobiographical account of combat in Vietnam. And Tim is sitting to the far left. Finally, we have with us C.D.B. Bryan. I haven't been able to figure out a rule that he's an exception to, but I trust he won't have hurt feelings. His book, Friendly Fire, is an account of the changes wrought in a middle American family by the death of their son in Vietnam, and is one of the best works ever written about American patriotism. He is also the author of several other books. What I'm going to do is ask a question that's sort of a series of questions. Could I uh, correct an impression? The uh, book Coming Home and the film Coming Home are very related. Oh. I have a $5 million lawsuit against United Artists and Jane Fonda, <laughs> because they are related. <laughs> I, uh, there was an independent producer in 1972 who took an option for coming home, the book, and they negotiated for about two months. This is a United Artists, the same people who put out the film coming home. The negotiations took about two months during early 1972, and then they decided that they would not make a film of that book. In about 1975, I heard rumors in, from California that there was a film being made that was to be called Coming Home that was about the Vietnam War. I wrote, I called, I didn't go out there, but I tried to get some information because I thought it was possible that there was a coincidence that United Artists would make a film called Coming Home about the Vietnam War. But I had to wait to see the film in a theater, and when I saw it in a theater, what I found was that there is a vast difference between the details. But at bottom, there is a very great similarity between the storyline. What happens in the film is a middle American couple, the woman of which gets attracted to a paraplegic while her husband is away saving the world for her. In the book, the, uh, Jane Fonda would have been attracted to an actor to play the character in the book would have been Jim Brown. The man was not a paraplegic, he was black. It was the same love triangle. It ended in the same way, in suicide. So I'd like to just correct that. My apologies, Mr. That's Davis. Because right. <laughs> <laughs> to show you, you should check your information. Okay. Uh, I'm going to ask a uh, question, which is really a sort of series of questions. Um, each person on the panel will then respond to that series of questions. Uh, and um, we're going to let the discussion go from there for a while, after which we'll open it up to questions from the audience. Here's my question. What has the literature of the war and the anti-war movement taught us, politically, morally, or literarily? How has it affected the public's perception of the war, of the United States, of human beings? What strikes you in the reading you have done about Vietnam as having been done particularly well or badly? and what strikes you as not having been written. And the first person who's going to respond is Ms. Fitzgerald. $64,000 question. <laughs> I'm not sure I can answer that, Harry. <laughs> In any case, um, 
I thought that uh, what I would do is, is uh, give a very short outline of, of what uh, uh, has been written about the war, what kinds of things, uh, what kinds of things have not. Uh, insofar as histories are concerned, uh, there has been uh, very little scholarship on Vietnam. Uh, in this country, there have been, uh, since the early 60s until date, uh, a total of one and a half scholars of Vietnam um, in, the Amer in American universities. The war has not been treated as a whole by an, a historian uh, in a scholarly or even an unscholarly fashion. Uh, there has been very little original research done on military documents, on the uh, embassy documents, on uh, the North Vietnamese. Uh, there have been uh, some excellent smaller works done, uh, which chronicle parts of the war. Um, uh, thinking of Frank Snepp's book on, on the fall of Saigon, uh, a new book by Robert Pizor on uh, Quezon. It's a small book. It's an interesting one. Uh, of course, uh, books by David Halberstam on uh, various parts of the war. Uh, but I suppose that... Um, in so far as history is concerned, the only one that, I mean, the most uh, uh, complete one that we have in print so far is still the Pentagon Papers and the gloss on them by uh, Daniel Ellsberg and Leslie Gelb. Uh, the most comprehensive history of the war may well be on film first. Uh, there will be, I think in, in 1983, will be a, appearing a uh, eleven part documentary series uh, which is includes a, an oral history from of people on both sides uh, by um, uh, a series of film crews working for uh, WGBH in Boston the public public uh, broadcasting system uh, this series I think uh, uh, indicates something which is rather important in the um, in the uh, documentation of the war, and that is that there has been a terrific mania for oral history, uh, certainly in nonfiction. And one wonders why that is. Um, is it a device which will allow uh, the authors or editors uh, to seem uh, impartial? Uh, do people, uh, are, are people loath to give a reasoned presentation of facts and arguments? Uh, is there no uh, sense of trust about what the audience is out there? Uh, why this resort to oral history? Uh, in the nonfiction but non-historical category, um, the most, uh, some of the most impressive accounts have been uh, testimonies of, uh, of soldiers, uh, again, uh, two, two recent oral histories I'm thinking of, one by Al Santoli and the other by a man called Baker, called Nam. They are accounts of soldiers' own experience uh, in combat. Um, Tim O'Brien, of course, his, his first book um, was uh, much the same thing. Uh, that is to say, an autobiographical account uh, of, of what, uh, what combat uh, was like. Um, 
there are uh, some very excellent books about uh, others in combat. That is to say, not first-person narratives, but um, uh, books like uh, Dispatches by, by Michael Hare, um, a book by Ron Glasser uh, about uh, the soldiers who arrived in, a, in Japan uh, in the hospitals, uh, 365 days. Uh, there are a number of excellent works of this sort. There are also books, uh, nonfiction accounts, including, of course, Gord Bryan's, um, of the effects of the war on the later lives of the soldiers or on the families of the soldiers. Um, I'm thinking, in addition to, to Bryan's, and, uh, of Gloria Emerson's uh, Winners and Losers. There are, of course, a great uh, number uh, these nonfiction accounts uh, have their parallels uh, and their counterparts in fiction. A great many of the novels of the war are first-person accounts of combat. Uh, this, starting from very early period of the war, a novel called War Games, uh, going through novels which are even now coming out, The 13th Valley, John Del Vecchio's, um, a book which I think has been neglected and is not represented on this panel called, called Short Timers by uh, Gustav Hasford. Uh, many, many others uh, like that. Uh, these first-person accounts, if you, were, if you will, uh, have also been very heavily represented in the plays about Vietnam. Uh, plays like Pavel, Pavlo Homo. Uh, Sticks and Bones by David Ray, and play that's now on um, How I Got That Story. Uh, by and large, uh, the, the fiction about the war has been the experience of military men, mostly GIs and not officers, although there are some exceptions to that, uh, in combat. Uh, they describe, I believe, the moral dilemmas of all wars, how men face danger and death, how men get along with each other in very extreme situations. And uh, all this with, a, of course, a great deal of information about the particular terrain of Vietnam. Um, but uh, the experience of Vietnamese is essentially limited to the, to the uh, experience that uh, most GIs had, that is, uh, that of the enemy, uh, that of the uh, villagers who were incomprehensible out there, uh, and perhaps a bar girl or two. Vietnam is a backdrop, as it were, a background for these novels. Um, and of course, uh, this uh, makes them no different from uh, many novels about World War II. Um, and of course, many of them are very brilliantly done. But I think what one has to notice in, the, in an account of the literature of the war so far is a near total avoidance of, of uh, politics, a rather narrow focus in general, uh, particularly among these novels, of the field of fire right in front of the soldier. And these novels are, I believe, very different from those of the French war uh, novels like Jean Lafugue's um, The Centurions, the uh, novels of Malraux and others, uh, 
uh, who, whose uh, particular subject may not be politics, although it often is, uh, but uh, in which the politics of the nation, uh, the particular dilemma of uh, the French in Asia uh, is always the, the context. Um, I think that many of the, what I might call GI novelists, uh, may believe that they have found the, the metaphor to describe the whole, um, the metaphor being the destruction of a village or the rape of a woman or, or the maiming of an American soldier. But um, I would submit that these are very uh, blunt instruments uh, with rather limited scope. And that uh, the difficulty uh, is that the, the, the very essence of the war on both sides, both in the United States and Vietnam, uh, is politics. And that part of the reason that, uh, that uh, these novels do not describe it is that uh, soldiers... Uh, most American GIs were no, nowhere near uh, its essence. Uh, in a in certain way, the way they moved across Vietnam, they were sort of superfluous to the entire uh, battle. Similarly, when they came home, uh, many of them began to assume that their problems were personal problems, not political problems for the nation as a whole. We heard an awful lot about the Vietnam Syndrome, uh, which was a sort of medicalization or psychoanalyticization uh, of, of um, uh, the problem of the war as a whole. Um, their problems always seem to be those of young men uh, growing up or trying to grow up in the midst of, of a, a bloody slaughter that they didn't understand and certainly didn't believe in. Uh, I think probably the, the problem for these novels that, is that, that um, you know, unlike uh, the novels of the Second World War, one thinks of Catch-22, uh, there there's simply no irony to this war. It's not a question of the difference between ends and means. The ends and means seem to be, uh, seem to be the same in the same um, sort of morally uh, and morally undistinguished. There's no irony, unless, of course, you get a little closer to the ground, uh, closer than the helicopters and the bombers, uh, to this whole drama of the American confrontation with Asia, which is, in fact, not so far from that of the, of the French with Asia. Uh, the American ambitions and American plans for Asia, uh, all of which had so little to do uh, with the reality of Asia. Um, that, uh, that in many ways they seem very solipsistic. And uh, uh, to me, uh, the works of literature to convey the essence of this war, uh, not saying that they are the best in any, in any uh, uh, larger sense, but the ones which seem to me to describe the Vietnam War as opposed to, as opposed to other wars the best, um, were ones which, oddly enough, came at the very beginning and the very ending of it. Uh, the first was Graham Greene's The Quiet American, which uh, was written uh, in the 1950s and which, in a sense, predicted the whole course of the American War. And the second, which was not a book at all, but rather uh, Sidney Shanberg's series of articles about, uh, in the New York Times about the fall of Phnom Penh, uh, which, again, w which uh, uh, 
was a work about the about the end of the empire, very much details. It was not political analysis, um, but it showed to me the the uh, the true drama um, of our our presence there. Thank you. Tim. Um, the discussion so far is, has focused on the question of, of vacuum in the literature of Vietnam. And I think the central question um, to address as a novelist is what is the central question of Vietnam? Is it to describe the experience of a foot soldier in Vietnam? Is it to describe the political uh, events which led to Vietnam? Is it, descriptive, is it to describe the terrain of Vietnam, to describe anything? And I think the answer to all those questions uh, is no. For a novelist, the central question has to do with the imaginative experience of Vietnam, not what it was, not pinning down the color of the sand, the color of the clay, not pinning down anything, but rather to refight the war and to refight the issues of the war. And more centrally, to ask the important philosophical question, uh, why fight at all? What's worth fighting for? When Frankie talks about the fiction of Vietnam, complaining that most of it's written in the first person, that a lot of it is in any case, or has a first-person perspective in any case, that most of it is written from the perspective of soldiers in combat, that most of it has no sense of the villagers of Vietnam or the enemy that was faced in Vietnam, or no sense of the Vietnamese in general, and that most of it disregards issues of, of grand politics, that is, means and ends, I find myself agreeing and saying, thank God, what a boring, um, unimaginative literature that would be. The, the question that a novelist asks, or that I ask in any case, is how through dramatic means, through making living characters, through making uh, uh, philosophy live through drama, is to get at the question of whether or not to go to war. And in my own work, I've approached it both as a nonfiction writer. My first book was uh, What Happened to Me, drafted uh, just out of college, a purely descriptive book. I realized, having finished it and having reread it several times thereafter, that it was inadequate. It was purely descriptive. Uh, what I went through, what I saw, and was bad in all the ways that Frankie's says that kind of book is bad. I didn't say it was bad. I didn't <laughs> say it was bad I'm at saying all, it is. Tim. I, I, thought it, I thought it was. I thought it was inadequate. And I thought it was inadequate because it didn't address the, 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 the imaginative question of what ought to have been happened to me. What ought to I have done? Questions of should and would and could. I should have run away. Intellectually, I knew that the war was wrong. Uh, I almost did. Uh, I went through a horrible period 
during advanced infantry training when I wrote my mother and father and asked for my shot card, my passport. Uh, I had money. And I was all set to, uh, my, my fort where I was going through advanced infantry training was uh, 90 miles from Canada, Fort Lewis, Washington. All it would have taken uh, was a bus ride. I went on leave from advanced infantry training, all set to bolt. Spent a horrible night in a, in a hotel room in Seattle, thinking the thing through for the last time. What should I do? I was a kid. I was 21 years old. I was ignorant of the politics that Frankie would want me to write about. Ignorant in the way that we all were, not just a 21-year-old kid. Ignorant of the civilization of Vietnam. Ignorant of the language. Ignorant of the culture, the religion. Ignorant of the politics. Ignorant of everything. I went through that uh, long night, got sick, ended up in a, in a, uh, in a, in a, uh, a hospital, coming down with pneumonia, and through some kind of gravity or sleepwalking, three, about a month later, boarded a plane and went to Vietnam. It was, a, it was a default. No decision was taken. No rational pros and cons arguments were made. I was pulled by gravity, by a whole series of emotional forces Fear that my parents would stop loving me for deserting. Fear that my girlfriend would think of me as a coward. Fear of losing my hometown. Uh, fear of, of losing myself in exile. A 21-year-old kid in exile. Ignorant of all that political stuff. That's what that, my first book described. And yet, the essential experience of, of, of going through that kind of thought wasn't dramatized. It was just what I've told you. And hence I decided to write a novel in which those issues, that kind of sense of gravity versus the intellectual politics of Vietnam could be dramatized through a character in his imagination walking away. What would happen if I'd gone to Canada? What would happen if Paul Berlin, my character in my novel, had really uh, decided to, to walk from Vietnam to Paris. And through dramatizing it, through making it live, as opposed to describing it, as I have to you here, I feel that I've gotten at the nub of what the Vietnam experience was. And I don't mean just for me. I mean in general. To imagine going to that war or not. Now that's a political question in its essence. But it's a question which comes down to one person, a single human being, either me or the character in my book. And I think if there's any single political question which is most important, not just to Vietnam, but to, to, to war literature in general, the political literature in general, it's that. Whether or not to commit one's life, oneself, to war. And that's a political question. And we needn't address means and ends to ask that question, but rather, to, but rather address the question of oneself looking at means and ends, a character viewing means and ends. And that's a political question. And I think it's the question which all important uh, fiction about war does address in the end. A farewell to arms, a fine novel, whatever you think of Hemingway or not, a fine novel, it addresses that question. Catch-22, that's the question. Whether to fight or run, go to war or not. If we think back to Homer, the same question. Go or run? 
That's the question that I think is essentially political, and that's the question that the literature of Vietnam ought to address, and I think much of it does. Mr. Davis. Yeah, I'd like to say that uh, my novel, uh, Coming Home, is very, very political. Some of the uh, remarks uh, that were made would seem to cast uh, most Vietnam writing out as rather parochial, dealing only with the individual experiences of individual people. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, coming home and let you judge whether it does deal with politics in any effective way. I can't remember a great deal about the novel. I wrote it in 1971, I guess, during four months between November, between June and November. And I did, wasn't conscious of a great deal of it coming out, and so I can't uh, remember all that happened in it. And I didn't read it again until 1978, I guess, when uh, the lawsuit came up. And I decided that before I sue somebody, I had better refresh myself on the details. So what I'll do for you is rather than making some comments on a novel, which uh, is difficult sometimes for me to talk about because it did pour out of me. It was kind of catharsis when I came back from the war. What I'll do is read a review from uh, The Nation magazine, which describes what I intended to do and what the reviewer saw uh, that I did. What I was trying to do was dramatize the Vietnam War, not simply as a war created in the 1960s, but a symptom of the 1960s. And I think that during the 1960s in America and the world, there were vast transfers of power. Let me say there was the beginning of vast transfers of power. The people who once owned the world were losing parts of it. They were losing parts of it domestically to blacks in the streets. They were losing parts of it internationally to Vietnamese. They were losing, in some ways, parts of it domestically even to their own wives. Because this was a period not only of black liberation, of liberation struggles around the world, but also women's liberation. And so in that context, what we have is a breakdown of what the reviewer calls the old familiar social, racial, and moral and literary lines that keep a society together. However undesirable as some of these lines are, their presence suggests a measure of stability and clarity for the main character who is white male named Stacy a recognizable world. But sometimes when we are concentrating upon the obvious, out of the corner of our eye we catch a movement. Unsure as to what it is, we turn to check and it's gone. The sensation is that of lines blurring at the edge of our vision, running like ink on a wet page. I'm not sure what this is, but is something and it produces a chilling effect of the unknown. It may be that in attempting to formulate his own experience, the meaning of the war for both whites and blacks, Davis struck a strange new dimension, one we would expect to find explicit in the sentences of uh, Vanugat or the scenes of Stanley Kubrick. But not even implicit in the neorealism of coming home, this inadvertent, and I guess they said it was inadvertent because they didn't think that I could do it intentionally, <laughs> Penetration makes this novel a conundrum and results in an effect stranger than that of Von Nugget or Kubrick because it is so unexpected. 
The reader's impression of the lives entangled in this war is one of vast confusion, moral, social, political, and military. All of Davis's characters are troubled by known forces, separation, war, race, social status, but through all of their actions, thoughts and words run an uneasiness deeper than these problems, an uneasiness whose source Davis never clarifies. Per probably he can't. That's another, uh, I guess probably he can't. Probably he doesn't know himself. For the feeling I'm speaking of is intuitive. So I guess the assumption was I didn't have intuition either. But what can be said very generally is that the cause of this uneasiness is a frightening disillusion of the old categories of perception. Caused, but, let's see, hold on, I lost my place. Perception and existence which the war has not caused, but has given us some hints of. Therefore, the, no, uh, the novel is not about the war, but it's about America and the world in the 1960s. It, uh, it's as if Davis has detected a trembling beneath the crust of our social, of our society, signifying an earthquake. And I'll break off the reading there because what I think we're seeing in El Salvador and other places is part of that trembling and part of that earthquake. And what we get caught up in is names, and I think the main function that any writer should perform is to make sure that things are called by their right names. It's very easy to call something communist or whatever you want to call it and uh, cast it out and fight against it when what we're really fighting against is the honest efforts of people to stop other people from fucking with them. That's what's happening in Central America. That's what's happening all over the world. And that's what coming home is about. And that's what the Vietnam War is about. And so I'd like to correct the impression that uh, the novels were not political. Mine was, of course, it only sold 3,000 copies, and so that's probably why nobody much knows about it. Oh, by the way, there's a new edition coming out from Howard University. <laughs> there's a new edition coming out from Howard University Press in uh, August of this year. Remember, remember the name Coming Home, just like the movie. So closely related to the movie. Uh, the next speaker will be Robert Olin Butler. <clears throat> we'll wait for the uh, tape recorder to start. Okay. Speaking in terms of a novelist, a fiction writer, I find myself agreeing wholeheartedly in one way with Frankie, but disagreeing, I think, in another way, perhaps just as wholeheartedly. I agree. I don't think uh, the fiction about Vietnam has dealt adequately with the Vietnamese people. Um, in this matter, virtually all of the books have failed pretty thoroughly. The Vietnamese have been portrayed either too vaguely or too one-dimensionally. And I think this is uh, at least partly due to a phenomenon that has been noted already, namely the fact that the vast majority of the novels about Vietnam deal with the fighting soldier who related to the Vietnamese primarily through the barrel of a gun. But as a matter of fact, the fighting troops in Vietnam represented less than 20% of the Americans in Vietnam. And though the technology was different in that war, and the ways of altering your senses were different, 
the fighting soldiers experience there and the fundamental human issues involved in fighting in the foxholes or the jungles, those fundamental human issues were no different from the World War II novels or the World War I novels or even from the Red Badge of Courage. It was, I think, the clash of specific cultures back where the gunfire was on the horizon that had the larger effect that perhaps suggested the, the uniqueness of the texture of that war. And if I think I understand what Tim is saying, I, I think I disagree rather radically with him. I don't find the Vietnamese and their culture potentially boring for novelists. I do agree with them about politics to some great extent, however. Um, it seems to me that in the act of creation, art and politics do not mix. Not if it's true art and not if it's true politics. Politics abstracts. It considers people as groups in relation to other groups or in relation to institutions. It considers countries and cultures on a global level. And all of this is antithetical to the artistic impulse. Artists consider the personal, the sensual, and the individual. Now, I'd hasten to add that well, the patterns of the artist that the artist sees are just as important. They're seen through a glass darkly, and I think they have to do with matters that are far more important than governments. Now, I would emphasize, however, that politics can take account of these things. And in fact, politics must take account of these things to be valid or effective. But even then, it must treat the personal, the sensual, and the individual as concepts, as societal goals to either pursue or repress. And it's true that politics weigh in on individual lives, and they become intimately bound up in person, the people's personality. So I think politics are going to inevitably be represented, portrayed in art. But any artist who lets the abstracting impulse of politics inform the artistic decisions that he or she makes will ultimately fail as an artist. And paradoxically, even the ultimate political point, the ultimate political usefulness of a good piece of art requires that kind of detachment. Particularly if we want to make the leap, as Harry kind of implies that we do, between, for instance, Vietnam and El Salvador. Novels about Vietnam are not about sappers and ancient Agent Orange and acid and pot and napalm and land reform. Novels about Vietnam are about death and memory and fear and courage and cowardness and the nature of love and kinship and human connection. 
If the book does not, the novel, does not engage the reader on these fundamental human issues, its most important political point will never survive the passage of time and the change of specific political circumstances. Cordy. I'm going to review the questions as I remember them. That was, what has the literature of the war and the anti-war movement taught us politi politically, morally, or otherwise? Is that right? Starting temporarily. Uh, all right. I seem to be too close to that. Is that all right now? Okay. I don't think the uh, literature of the war has taught us anything. Uh, I believe that the combined sales of this entire panel probably does not exceed the number who watch Ugly George on Manhattan Cable. <laughs> You're probably right. I mean, it's a, it's a terribly depressing fact, but nobody reads books. And so I don't think if we're t talking about us as a generic term for the people of this vast country, that the literature of the war has made any difference. Uh, nor has it affected the public's perceptions of the war, of the United States, of human beings, and so forth. Uh, politically, the literature has depended during the war and shortly after the war on where it appeared. It was almost certain that you would know that if a, a piece appeared in the, in the nation, the New Republic, the New Yorker, the Saturday Review, and uh, the New York Review of Books, that it represented a point of view directly opposed to what was appearing in the National Review and publications such as that, so that magazines were, were bought and read by people who already agreed, for the most part, with what was being written. Uh, how did it affect us morally? I don't know. I, don't, I think it's far too early to tell that. I think right and wrong in the war keep blurring, and, and for little instances, Things become very clear, and then something happens, and another book is published, or another point of view appears, and you begin to qualify again. So that leaves what has happened to those books that have sold to television or to the movies, which is the only place that any segment of the population in large numbers is being reached. And in the case of the movies, these are people between the ages of 17 and 28, I think, is the average moviegoer. And on television, it's considerably older. Since we have talked a little personally tonight, I will say that the decision to sell Friendly Fire to ABC was deliberate. And it was a decision that had been talked about while Peg Mullen and I sat at the kitchen table in Iowa, knowing that nobody was going to read the book and the only way to reach them was to slug them on Sunday night on the most schlock network while they had six packs of beer by their chair and shake them and say, you are responsible for what happened because you sat there throughout the entire war. 
The other appearances that have been on TV have largely dealt with Vietnam vets who in one form or another have become madmen and are responsible for assassinations. In the movies, with the exception of Coming Home, I'm not going to discuss that knowing a $5 million lawsuit is at stake, and God knows I don't want to be called in for a witness. But they have asked us to believe that guys in rat-infested cages being lowered into the river by the Viet Cong are then going to return to Pittsburgh and sit around a table and sing America the Beautiful. I simply, I don't believe this. So from the vast scope of what this literature done and the impact is zilch, I want to talk about that small noble band of writers that we uh, represent and those who are not with us and their names are legion. I think what we have done well is tried to make sense out of that war. Uh, Harry, when he gave us the introduction, mentioned the piece of graffiti that he saw in the subway. And I remember that one of the first pieces I read about Vietnam was written by Bernard Fall. And he came across a piece of graffiti written by an American artilleryman in a bunker. And it was simply, I'm totally incapable of relating to this environment. <laughs> I, I think that has said it all, you know? I mean, if there should be an epitaph for the war, it was that. But all of us, in one form or another, have tried to deal with our inability to relate to this environment. I did not go to Vietnam, and uh, I don't apologize for that or make any statement. I was too old and uh, very damn grateful that I didn't have to face any sort of decision. However, I have a son now who is 18, and he is just registered for the draft. The alienation that we have had to deal with is how to make sense out of body counts. And the only way I could do that in my case is to take one specific incident, one young man who was killed, and show the impact his death had on his family. My book was not about what the war did to us in Vietnam but what it did to us in this country. There was a necessity that we all felt to focus because the images of the war, we were incapable of focusing on. I mean, if we were incapable of, of, uh, incapable of it, think of people like Tim O'Brien, who was there, and George. So that attempt to focus on it was an attempt to make some sense out of something that was basically obscene. What did Michael Mullen die for? And he was the boy in the uh, Iowa book. I used to say he died to keep us out of Angola. I think now he died to keep us out of El Salvador.
And when you think, to go back to what are books selling, that George's book sold 3,000 copies. Bob Butler's book I had not read until the last several days, and it's an enormously moving book. And I think the only book I've come across that deals with what it felt like to be Vietnamese, not only a Vietnamese in Vietnam, but a Vietnamese returning with her boyfriend to the United States. It's a, it's a touching, touching story about the cultures. Uh, Tim O'Brien's book, I think, is perhaps the only realistic way to have dealt with, with the war. There's going after Cacciato, which I think was the National Book Award, wasn't it? Yeah, well, a little envy here and there. <laughs> what we deal with as writers. But there's been a lot of superb literature written already. And I, I went through my bookcase. First of all, any of us who have written about the war, who have had any publicity get mailed every book that's been written about the war. And uh, surprisingly enough, there are some enormously good books. Uh, we have not mentioned... Phil Caputo's book, A Rumor of War, which was superb. Or Ron Kovic's Born on the Fourth of July. Uh, when Frankie mentioned, mentioned Ronald J. Glasser's book, The 365 Days, many of you may be even familiar with the burn ward story in that you can't go home again about a horribly burned young, young man brought in for treatment into the hospitals in Japan. It's one of the most moving stories that I think I've, I've ever read that's come out of the war. Larry Heinemann's Close Quarters was absolutely overlooked somehow, and it was, again, a superb book. Uh, I don't know if Bob mentioned the name of his book, The Alleys of Eden. Horizon Press, I'm sure there's a paperback coming out. <laughs> I, I hope so. Tom Wolfe wrote a superb piece in, I think, his collection... Mad Men, Clutter, and Vine. I'm not sure about Navy uh, uh, jet pilots taking off carriers uh, called Jousting with Charlie? Jousting with Sam and Charlie? Does anybody know that? Mr. Charlie? It was a good story. Uh, Daniel Lang, Casualties of War, the Jonathan Shell series that ran, uh, and all that wonderful talk of the town editorialing, editorials in the New Yorker that I think Jonathan Schell was uh, primarily responsible for. Frankie may, may correct me on that. Uh, Bernard Fall, the Seymour Hirsch, Milai, Mary McCarthy's Medina. Uh, the Pentagon Papers. Who can forget? The, <laughs> the incredible arrogance revealed by the Pentagon Papers and the incredible inability of the government to either understand the people of the United States or the people of uh, Southeast Asia. I guess what I'm trying to say is there has been superb literature already created that will rank with the literature of any war, any time, any place. But I don't think any of the great books that came out of the First World War changed anybody's mind about starting the Second World War. Nor did the Second World War keep us out of Korea. Uh, it would be wonderful if we kept us out of El Salvador. 
I hope we do. Perhaps we could try a go-round in order. I th- I've noticed you're taking voluminous notes, Frankie. Do you want to respond? <laughs> <coughs> Can we have some water before you? I'm a little chalked a bit here. <laughs> Um, I'm very grateful to uh, Cord Bryan for having reminded us all of, uh, of a lot of extraordinary books about the war, and they really ought to be mentioned again because I do think that they that a lot of them have been uh, neglected and, and uh, that they do rank uh, with uh, the, some of the finest literature in in, um, in America. Um, I do think very much that uh, that uh, that uh, the novelists of this war, since that's what we're really dealing with here, perhaps, uh, and the playwrights, have made a good deal of sense of a lot of uh, elements of the war. They've made a good deal of sense of personal experience. They have put life where there were only numbers before. And I think that that, uh, that is the essence of it. And I do not believe that, um, that novels are written in order to stop all wars. Um, I believe they have an aim uh, far beyond that. But I would like to, perhaps just for the point, for the purpose of irritating Tim O'Brien again, since we've been around this <laughs> once before, uh, to, um, to uh, uh, make uh, the same comment I made in the beginning in a, in a slightly different uh, fashion, which is that and that uh, perhaps one might even generalize it even further, is that, that uh, Americans do not tend to be very political in general. Um, that is to say that they do not tend to see themselves in the context of the individual action, the context of their own society. Um, Bob Butler just said that art and politics don't mix, that politics abstracts. It considers people as groups. Art is personal, sensual, and individual. Well, this is not what Tolstoy thought. Um, It's not what uh, uh, most European writers thought. Indeed, it's not even what George Davis thinks at all, because he has showed us, um, uh, by talking about his his book, the way in which... uh, Politics, social, cultural politics mixes with individual lives the way it indeed shapes uh, the, the way lives are led. And uh, it seems to me that, um, that uh, it is this that I'm talking about when I'm talking about politics. I don't, I don't mean the, the headlines of the daily newspapers. I mean uh, the, the entire social context. Um, and I do not think that Tim has really responded to this point, because uh, he has he what he told us was that uh, the real question uh, about uh, war is uh, should one go or not? Should one decide to risk one's life? And that seems to me ultimately a question of means and ends. That is to say. Uh, you will, you will go to a war that you believe in, you believe the ends are, are wrong, knowing that the means are always terrible. I mean, war is hell, it really is, it's always hell. 
But the question is, um, do you, the, the question of whether you're going to go to a war against Hitler or go to a war against Ho Chi Minh uh, is a very different one. Uh, and it is that um, which I think we, don't, we do not discover from a lot of the, of the literature of the war. Again, I'm not suggesting that, that uh, novels are to be political tracts, not at all, but rather that, uh, that the entire, uh, that what is missing from so much American writing, and again, uh, it needn't be, I'm not saying that all novels have to be political ones. I mean, uh, goodness knows, uh, there, there are many very internal sort of interior um, uh, novels which are, which uh, which uh, wh- whose quality is is uh, as uh, ranks with anything I mean it's not a question of quality here but I'm just saying that what is in general missing is this overall context okay um, I'll, I'll respond just directly to one to the one point Frankie made which is that one would rationally go to war, perhaps, against a Hitler, and rationally, perhaps, not go to war against a Ho Chi Minh. Unfortunately, life isn't always rational, is it? Um, as, I thought, as I thought I said in my first statement, many emotional factors come into play as well. Among them, love of family, uh, a desire to live in one's hometown for the rest of one's life, or at least in one's country, to not lose the respect and love of a girlfriend. Trivial little things, aren't they? Um, and yet, in their emotional impact, they, they become less than trivial. They become uh, as, as important as the uh, whether or not the North in Vietnam is aggressing against the South. Uh, they become as important as issues... Well, what was the Geneva Conference? And what, what, uh, is Rusk right or is Rusk wrong when he tells me that uh, we ought to fight in Vietnam? Uh, is Johnson bullshitting or not when he tells me that, or all of us, um, that American destroyers were attacked in the Tonkin Gulf uh, in an act of uh, obvious patent aggression? Possibly. <laughs> The problem is when, when one looks at all those kind of rational sorts of questions, yes or no, who's right and who's wrong, means and ends sorts of questions, that other factors come into play, emotional factors. And as a novelist, one's interest is in dramatizing the interplay of rationality on the one hand, right and wrong, and um, the things that um, were talked about over here which are questions of emotion. And it's that interplay which I think can only be accomplished through um, either the very best uh, war memoir sort of writing or the very best fiction, because it addresses the questions in terms of imagination. These factors are processed by the novelist, the novelist's imagination, dramatizing them. Um, I'm not opposed to having politics in, in books of fiction. I think all my books are political in one sense. But I'm looking at politics as how uh, the the process impedes on individual consciousness and individual morality. And individual morality is not, I submit, a function purely of rationality. 
What I wonder on this question, is it possible to dramatize those interplays and interrelationships between individuals on when we deal with larger questions than uh, the questions that you suggest? It's not, uh, the two things are not mutually exclusive. Because you deal with uh, some questions that have to do with larger than personal things, it doesn't mean that the drama cannot be worked out in some sort of very novelistic, very artistic way in the lives of individuals. In fact, I would say that great novels do that. Regardless of uh, uh, whether we call them political or not, they do talk about vast social changes in society. I think that even Madame Bovary does that, or uh, even, uh, let's say, War and Peace does that. Uh, the size of the question is not really a problem. I think that you can dramatize sufficiently on uh, very large questions. And one question that you can dramatize things uh, on in relation to war novels is, who is trying to take what away from who? And that plays into the lives of those people who have to fight the war and justify for themselves, what the hell am I doing here? And I think that those are the kinds of questions that can be dramatized in novels. I think that in a lot of cases we steer away from them because they are tougher questions, but there are possibilities of making the interplay even between a man and a woman dramatize precisely that, of what is happening in society. For example, if you saw the film Coming Home, that's precisely what that film was about, dramatizing the relationship between a man and a woman, but it certainly told you a great deal about uh, women's liberation. And so the larger questions can get into works of uh, fiction, and that fiction can remain artistic. Just a brief um, response to Frankie. Um, I think uh, citing Tolstoy is an excellent um, proof of the fact that uh, great literature is essentially apolitical. I don't think the politics of the Napoleonic Wars have a lot of bearing anymore on, on uh, our society or the size of societies that have enjoyed Tolstoy. Malraux, uh, the Chinese Civil War is uh, not exactly a lively political issue anymore. Um, I'm talking not about the context of books, the historical context, or even the political engagement of individual characters. I'm talking about how people write novels, what their focus is in the act of creation, and that, I think, is fundamentally an apolitical act. If it were not, then people like Tolstoy and Malraux, if they were, in fact, in their fundamental creative process, political, their books would not survive. Yes, there's a wonderful quote uh, from Tolstoy, and I can't remember where it appears, but he said, I find the story has the deepest meaning, or the, I find the story has the deeper meaning when it's impossible to tell which side the author is on. Uh, I, I get the impression from Frankie, what, what she was saying, and I may, be, I may be wrong on this, that she wants a more active participation by the author in the politics of the war about which the author is writing, is that? I didn't say which side. All right. Pick a side. Both, <laughs> maybe. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that we can 
ever write meaningfully about the politics of a particular war until long after its participants are dead and the records are released. I mean, I just don't feel we have any idea yet what was going on there. The deals made, the uh, money spent. Uh, I think all we can do is those of us who were writing about it uh, continue to be angry, continue to be alert to the possible subversions of our freedoms, which uh, are a constant danger around us. Uh, all it takes is a, is a loss of a political virginity to make you very damn cautious the next time anybody who is in political office opens his mouth and tells you that things are going to be better if you do X or they're going to be worse if you do Y. And I know that during my tour in Korea that it was what was going on there that made me very damn suspicious about what they were telling us was going on in Vietnam. And it made me angry enough to want to spend the amount of time it took to write the book, so that the young men who felt betrayed and used and wasted, though not literally, metaphorically, uh, are the people who are going to write the books that are going to make us alert, if they sell to the movies and TV, of what's going to happen the next time. Uh, I, I just don't think that you can write about a current political situation or even a recent political situation without it becoming propaganda to one side or another. Nobody's burning with the response. Um, maybe we can throw it open to questions from a very patient and dedicated audience. Figures are American. Uh, there is, by the way, a very good 
got an answer to that? Yes, sir. I really don't know. Uh, but that will not prevent me from giving you an answer. <laughs> I mean, what the hell, right? You are a panelist. The two good books that I remember from Korea were, was Slam, Marshall's Pork Chop Hill, and uh, a, a book by Martin Russ called The Last Parallel, which was as much a book about loving to be a Marine as it was about Alec Wilder, curiously enough. It was a very good sort of sensitive book about the guy who really did dig it in a funny way. And he was there during the uh, DMZ negotiations. And so he saw not the kind of action that would make him grow up, I guess. But it was a good book. Why there hasn't been anything more, I don't know. Um, pure speculation. I wonder what percentage of people that go to war are inclined to or capable of writing books. And I wonder if, in fact, the number of people who went to the World War II and the number of people who passed through Vietnam weren't not so different. You know, if you took the proportion of books that came out of those wars against the proportion of people that went to Korea, it was a somewhat more... I don't know how many people filtered through that war. Do you know offhand if, if as many people went to... Also, there was a, there was still, people were still, mm -hmm. people were still working, World War II's books were still, in fact, were only beginning to start um, working that war out of our system at that time as well. I wonder how many Korean books got buried at that time because World War II was the much clearer focus for, for the output, too. Well, also... Novels do not usually get written by professional soldiers. There, there are That's exceptions, right. but uh, but it's usually by civilians. I'm going to speak of it as well.
Can I ask you if you have a question for the panel, sir? But I'm glad you made your comment. I'd like to suggest that you do write to Howard University Press and get a copy of Coming Home, because I only had a chance to give you a brief rundown of what is there. But there is uh, exactly what you were talking about in the book. So thank you for asking the question. Well, it's an interesting point. Um, I, I, what I gather simply from going about in colleges is that, that uh, you know, many undergraduates who are, after all, too, too young to have uh, uh, remembered really anything, certainly not the te for, uh, beyond the Tet Offensive, uh, see the war as being something generally nasty. Now, why it's nasty, they don't quite know. And who inflicted this nastiness on us is is not at all clear. Um, if you read the uh, U.S. history textbooks uh, for the schools as opposed to colleges, uh, you'll see that the um, the textbook writers believe that the war is still such an issue that they have to avoid it almost entirely. Um, they have what what I know is the crabgrass theory of the war. That is that 
uh, it started one day, and it went on, <laughs> and it grew and grew and got bigger and bigger. And um, several American administrations tried to stop it, but they couldn't stop it, and on it went and on it went. And uh, finally, um, all our efforts at, at, uh, at peace over 10 years uh, came to fruition in the end. That's, that's the history of the war. Uh, no, that's been the history of the war for some time, and um, as far as I know, it's still still the one written. I mean, there are, obviously there are exceptions, but this is what the the, the majority of of uh, sort of big basic U.S. history textbooks for uh, school children say about it. I think you also have to take into account once you get out of an urban area, who sits on the school boards in rural communities, and these are. Of people who do not want a history written of the war. I'm making a very dangerous generality, I know, but they do not want the kind of history that we want to have written because it's threatening. And they would rather not have any history book say anything about this country that does not present us as a altogether a terrific people. Again, you should see how Korea has vanished. I mean, there's hardly a mention of Korea in these books. Let me just ask my own continuation of that question, which there was a part of it that I thought was interesting to Frankie and maybe Tim, who have been going around to colleges and you, Cordy, I'm not sure. Um, do you see much of a change? Is there, is there increasing ignorance about it? Um, is that a function of political changes or just of people coming along who just uh, were not around? I think as kids get younger, as it were. <laughs> no. Do you see any opinion? People didn't talk about it in their homes either. I mean, so these kids who you see in college who are 21, and the war ended for us in 72, I think, was it? Ten years ago, they were 11, and if and there was nothing on television, there was nothing in the movies, and very few of them had books or magazines, and so they knew nothing about it. And, uh, it's a terrible gap. In a funny way, it's like uh, being uh, growing up in Germany after the Second World War. You know, you don't know what happened, but your parents don't talk about it, and something awful went on. <laughs> and I, and I would like to say this for 
I wish I'd asked that question. <laughs> Nobody wants to ask that question. <laughs> Come on, you chickens. Uh, why don't you ask part of the question? <laughs> <laughs> The uh, consciousness-raising aspect, I think, would relate something uh, somewhat to the politics uh, that uh, are prevalent now in the country. And as we get uh, deeper into El Salvador, I think that Vietnam fiction will provide some sort of understanding of what some processes are that work in cases like that. And so perhaps the political situation will stimulate some interest in I don't. Let me take a crack at that, if I may. I think it's a two-step process. One of them, the first step, to answer your question, will it be written? I think it is being written. I mean, I think it's being written all over the country now. The question is whether a publisher will buy it. And that's timing again. And so you get into your other question, do, I think there'll be, do we think there'll be a resurgence? If the publishers feel there's a market for it, yes. Yeah, I, I think there's a certain, and relating to the other gentleman's point too, I think there's a certain basic naivete going on here. Political sophistication, but artist, artistic naivete. That, you know, fiction writers don't sit down and say, okay, now I've got a, a good grasp of the political issues involved in Vietnam, and I'm going to write a novel which demonstrates that, okay? Politics, as I say, you know, artists sometimes are artists in spite of themselves. They go in with political intentions, or they feel that they're writing politically. George Bernard Shaw is a wonderful example. He still delights audiences all over the world. And he thought he was a terrifically political writer. But if he were a terrifically political writer, Fabianism is hardly an issue anymore. And uh, he would be long dead. So politics and art are in, intimately intermingled, just as, as, as the, the color of people's, as sex is, I mean, and, and uh, uh, the color of people's uh, hair and eyes and the, the way they uh, shrug their shoulders. These are elements that are going to be in books forever, as, as will politics. 
But an artist does not sit down to create a book that makes a political statement. If he does, then he's either going to write a bad book or he's going to be an artist in spite of himself. Same thing. But he was, again, as I say, his, his, he's creating books that, whose, whose lasting virtue is because he sees beyond the political into the basic human issues that, that motivate people. People are motivated politically, but they, there are basic human issues there. They're far more important than politics. And I think one thing you have to realize, those books that survive, the decisions for survival of those books are political decisions. Therefore, if we say this is a great book because it survived 4,000 years, that's because someone in political power said that that book ought to be here. And there were other books written at that same time which didn't survive because certain people said that they didn't want people reading those books. No, I, you know, that, I think that's... The question was, do I think, do we think, because of our books on Vietnam, that young people will not go into El Salvador? I don't think we have any say in it. You know, I really don't. I just don't. I mean, unless we can, if, if, as this gentleman has suggested, our books do have influence, then perhaps we can influence those people who do uh, make those decisions. I think the war in Vietnam ended not because of our books, but because a lot of people came to agree with us and simply realized that the war was wrong. And democracy works on the most cynical of levels, and that is that when the people that you've elected to represent you no longer resent you and realize they're not going to be reelected, they're going to dance to your tune. And when suddenly hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people all over this country were in the streets, then they suddenly started dancing a let's get out song. And there's going to be a lot of memoirs where Nixon and Kissinger will say they did it single-handedly and they get the Nobel Prize, but that's bullshit, we know. Uh, I don't know if we can keep us from them committing troops to Vietnam, I mean, not Vietnam, El Salvador, but I think when uh, the number is called for our sons and our lovers and whatnot, uh, we can try to talk to them and say uh, there is an alternative. I think to go back to one of the very first things Tim O'Brien was talking about, where he was mentioning fight or run, uh, there were a lot of people in this country who didn't know the alternative existed, that uh, they could run. I mean, in the, uh, in, again, in the rural areas, and I don't want to risk offending that gentleman, <laughs> in the rural areas, there were not the organizations that there were in urban areas. And maybe Bergen County is more urban than, say, LaPorte City or Black Hawk County in Iowa, but Michael Mullen didn't know. There were no Quaker groups. There were no university wives. 
saying, don't go, there are ways out of it. There were no doctors willing to declare him uh, homosexual or whatever else it took. And so Michael Mullen went, and he got to the draft headquarters that night, and he went through the files, and he saw all the boys who had gotten out of Vietnam, and he said, Jesus, I didn't need to be here. Well, now these kids growing up, and my 18-year-old son and your sons and whatnot, realize there is an alternative. And the government realizes we realize there's an alternative. And that's the difference, perhaps, books have made, along with the fact that 56,000 Americans died in Vietnam. I think, I think that one role of art is, um, has to do with ambiguity, that as we sit here, there's, there seems to be almost a consensus in the room and on the panel that the war in Vietnam was wrong. Um, one of the things which bothers me about that is that, that in the last five or six years there's been no discussion about those particulars, those issues which got us into the war in the first place, political issues. And we, we were left with kind of a shoulder shrugging, well, crazy, absurd war, stupid war. Um, whereas in fact, if we think back to, the, to that era of the Vietnam War, what we were faced with was a really difficult problem. I wasn't kidding when I said, is Rusk right or wrong? Um, even those of us who came to despise the war in Vietnam, in the beginning, um, trusted. Um, and only gradually came to distrust through experience or through vast amounts of reading. And one of the things which I think art tries to ought, at least ought to try to accomplish is to get at that sense of ambiguity and tussle, thematic tussle, moral tussle, that sense of ambiguity. It's very easy to sit here and say the war was wrong. It's much more difficult to get at that, that earlier sense of, of, I don't know if it was right or wrong. All we did know was that certain blood was, was shed for reasons which were uncertain at best certain blood for uncertain reasons. Um, and I think it's this sense which makes me feel uneasy. That, that is not taking a stance and defending it through whatever means, but rather through exploring um, heuristically uh, the issues at stake, some of which are emotional.
I think that's uh, essentially what the point is, and as that happens, what you'll find is that when we look at things uh, in the wrong perspective, name them wrong, we keep coming up on the wrong side of questions. I like to think of Vietnam as one of the last winnable neo-colonial wars. It was winnable, but we lost it because the American people decided that they no longer wanted to be a part of that. And so the action here in the street made it impossible. Now what will happen is you'll sanitize that war, go into El Salvador, and I think the American people, again, will make sure that that sort of thing doesn't happen. So regardless of what intellectuals, reviewers, or the establishment would say about that book, I think that there are enough people who can think for themselves to realize what the book is. Well, we're really talking about literature here, so I, I just am um, a little loath to get off into the whole journalism of the, of the war. I think we should go back to the kind of concerns that, that, uh, that Tim was raising, for example, and as, as it, the way that art uh, deals with politics and so on. say something I said before. I think the war is still too fresh to do that kind of thing. Do you know, it wasn't until, what, last couple of years ago that they did Torah, Torah, Torah. No. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't think, I don't think you can talk politics about a, a book of the kind of sort that we'd all like to see written, and one thing that has not been done, un until you can get the other side's point of view.
I couldn't agree with you more. That is the problem with the educational system in the United States. Yes, I think that's right. I um, read read Gloria Emerson's winners and losers on that point too, <laughs> rather very explicitly. All right, well, let me try it. I, I have, I have, uh, it's really out of delicacy to being in your city that I haven't mentioned my feelings about urban school boards and, and communities like that. I mean, I think it's across the board, for the most part, the school boards who are in some places responsible for choosing the textbooks that are taught in their schools have been choosing textbooks that are, are a good bargain you know, and that's, that they're acceptable to a large number of people and therefore they're not controversial, which the war was, and therefore you, you, you can't get into that. Uh, I don't believe that the two million Vietnam veterans are reading our books. You know, I don't think they want to read them particularly. Some of them do, but I think the vast majority would like the country, would like to just put it under the rug and get it as far behind them as they possibly can. That whole point of the, the war receding in the pages of the history book, as it's superseded by new crises, is a, is a very real one, until finally Vietnam is going to get those two or three sentences. It was the longest war in American history, and 56,000 Americans were killed. And then we go on to something else. It's, a, it's pathetic. I, I don't mean to sound so cynical about it. No. Let me, let me uh, offset Cordy's cynicism here. Um, I may be the only person on the panel who is now writing a book on Vietnam. Is that true? I'm slow, you know, getting <laughs> around to these things late. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I both hope that what you suggest is going to happen is going to happen, since my book will be out in a few years. Um, but uh, w one part of my reaction to what you said is that uh, uh, in the course of writing this book, recently, in the past few months, I've been talking to a lot of Vietnam vets. And um, 
I've found that at least they say uh, that they're thinking about Vietnam more. I constantly run into vets who are in the process of reading about Vietnam when I go to, you know, when I go to talk to them. Um, I think if that's if that's really happening to a, to any sort of large extent uh, around the country, that it's um, I mean it's both very encouraging for me, uh, but I think for the you know for the kinds of things that you're that, that you're talking about, and while um, I, I probably ultimately agree with with Cordy on the futility of it all. Uh, no, I don't ultimately agree with Cordy on the futility of it. Neither do I. I, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, I, I, I think I think these things do do happen in little steps, and that three thousand sales of a book is better than is better than none, and five thousand is better than three thousand. And, and I I think uh, the kinds of the kinds of things that I feel are are taking place just from the the conversations that I'm having are are very encouraging. I mean, aside from the fact that we have, we have in fact, managed to stay out of a few wars uh, so far, thanks to the whole experience, and we may be able to stay out of the one that they're trying to foist on us now. Well, my editor is in the audience. Maybe she... <laughs> <laughs> We have with us Ian Ballantyne, who has been one of the leading publishers in this country for a great many years. Ian, perhaps you can say. say the enemy, you mean the, the Vietnamese, yeah. North Vietnamese. critical reception, my book was turned down 21 times before it found a publisher. Um, and Vietnam played a very large and insidious role in that. Um, it went to 21 publishers. Almost all of my rejection letters were ecstatic, admitting every virtue in the book except its marketability. A number of those publishers were frank enough to clearly state that marketability for them meant it's about Vietnam. A couple of other publishers, um, another way that Vietnam was insidious, and politics too, um, was that several of them had clear political points of view on, with which they read the books. One of them really couldn't figure out what I was trying to say about American policy in Vietnam. Another one said that the book was powerful, but there weren't enough battle scenes. This kind of experience over the past three and a half years 
does not uh, suggest to me that the American publishers have really opened their arms to this whole experience. I think um, we're just going to take a couple of more questions and then give the panel a vacation. Um, I'll, I'll call on both of you who haven't spoken before. I think you're missing the point that I knew the war was wrong. At least I was convinced of it, as, as given the information I had, which was, which was largely based on ignorance. But I was still thought that war was wrong. Um, and it wasn't intellect. It wasn't information which decided the issue. It was a lot of other stuff on top of the, of the uh, intellectual stuff. Um, and we, we can't discount that stuff family ties, leaving uh, one's life behind. Uh, I went to that war knowing it was wrong. Um, and what's interesting for me is how that sort of process works, which is a psychological process and a moral process. Um, it wasn't information. I'll go on, yes. I know. No, I think that's an important point. But, um, uh, First place, I do think that the uh, that the journalism on El Salvador, um, particularly in, in um, what do they call it, the prestige media? That's the term uh, the administration's using now. Um, has been uh, significantly better than it was uh, in Vietnam in the early days. Uh, very much informed by the by the uh, coverage of Vietnam and all the mistakes that reporters make forever and ever, and by and by their basic uh, uh, refusal to distrust or to trust everything the administration says about things. Um, I have not myself seen a, a really a good political history of El Salvador, but I would not be surprised if one didn't come out fairly shortly. There is a new interesting book by um, Steve Schlesinger and uh, Steve uh, Kinsler Kinsler uh, about the coup in Guatemala, for instance, in 57. Uh, from the point of view of American policy, uh, interesting book. Um, and I'm, I, I bet you there will be a spate of them soon, um, given that there are more journalists in San Salvador at the moment than there ever were in Saigon, I think. <laughs> uh, even though there are only two million people in, in El Salvador.
Well, it's the, also the problem of history teaching in this country, just to finish that off. I mean, there, there, there is no history taught in the schools of any sort or kind. If they only teach the Napoleonic Wars, it'd be terrific, too. Okay, I'd like to thank all of our panelists for the words of wisdom.